Welcome to the Sex, Money and Rage podcast. And it's only when I started trading that I realized that I wasn't safe. And it's only when I started working with the plants that I realized that I wasn't safe and that no amount of money was ever going to make me feel safe forever, right? And that that safety was going to come in from inside. Welcome back, everyone, to Sex, Money, and Rage. I'm your host, Ellie McIntyre, and today is episode number two. So if you listened to episode one and you've come back to listen again to episode two, welcome back and thank you. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and thank you for listening. So what is Sex, Money, and Rage? Well, I wanted to start a podcast that talked about the provocative stuff in life and in society like sex, money and rage, because these are such, you know, polarizing topics in life and in business. And they're, they're really powerhouses, uh, you know, if we choose to work with them. So I want to talk about them because they're a bit taboo and, and they've been a really big part of my personal life and, and journey. So yeah, I'm I'm super excited. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And so today I am interviewing my friend Claire and Claire has done a lot of work with plant medicines here in Peru. That's how we met. And she's also very big in the crypto scene. So we had a really good chat about crypto and money and totally nerded out. But we also talked about you know, why do we want money? Why do people seek money? And what are we trying to get out of it? You know, and, and a big part of it is a sense of safety because maybe we don't feel safe in life. And so a way we can feel safe and, you know, be in control is to control money. Uh, and so we talked about Claire's journey in that sense with money and safety and trading and getting chewed up and spat out on the trading market and what what Claire learned. So I think it's going to be a really, really cool episode and I think you're going to enjoy it. So cool. Uh, If you're enjoying it so far, please leave a five-star review on the episode. It helps to get the word out, makes me feel good and keep putting episodes out. So uh, yeah, if you feel like doing that, I would really, really appreciate it. It takes about 60 seconds. And if you want, check out Sex, Money and Rage, sorry, sexmoneyrage.com no end (laughs) sexmoneyrage.com to sign up for my free email newsletter where I talk about all things sex money and rage and plant medicine psychedelics somatics just a whole bunch of stuff that I'm learning and finding works really well in life so so yeah that's that um what's been happening in Peru lately well John is off drinking Wachuma today so I've got the house to myself I've got a huge mattress in front of me because I'm recording and my office has wooden floorboards and not much stuff in it yet because I haven't really decorated it so it's very very echoey so I'm looking at a mattress to try and deaden the sound and I've got some blankets and pillows around the place so it's a bit of a slumber party in my office today it's a it's a lot of fun so um yeah so that's a bit about me I went into town this morning I'm learning how to ride a motorbike which is a bit different to a car uh especially because it's just me and I'm just trial and erroring it as I go whereas in a car you know my mum was next to me screaming at me like don't hit that car in front of you and like you know turn turn here so it's a bit different when I don't have my mum yelling at me but you know I'm, I'm figuring it out I haven't crashed thankfully. And it is, it's a lot of fun. It's very convenient uh, to get around here. So I went in and did all, did all the shopping because the roads were open and we've had a bunch of protests and road closures here in Peru. You've probably seen it on the news. What is it? It's uh, mid-December 2022, just for anyone who's curious. But by the time this episode comes out, it probably will be old news. Anyway, that's just a bit of a snippet into life here in Peru. Uh, If you have any questions or want to request a favorite guest to come on the podcast, please go to sexmoneyrage.com, sign up for the email newsletter and hit reply to the first email you get and let me know your thoughts. And just a heads up, there may be affiliate links in the episodes, which I may earn commissions on, which help keep the podcast alive and pumping. If you're enjoying it, hit the subscribe button. We've got new episodes coming every week on Sundays at 5 p.m. EST. So put it in your diary. I'm excited and 
yeah, that's that's it from me. And we're going to jump in and hear what Claire has to say all about crypto and feeling safe with money. Check it out. Hey, Claire, how are you going today? Hey, I'm good. And yourself? Yeah, really good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. We're going to get into some crypto stuff today, which is very exciting. Um, But I wanted to start with you were born in Kenya and just a bit about what that was like and what it was like learning this Swahili language. Yeah. Um, It's hard to know what it was like versus another life, but I can certainly tell you about my memories um, from Kenya. So I'm actually half French and half Peruvian. Uh, And so born in Kenya and brought up by my mother, um, because my dad's a bit of an adventurer. And um, it was basically a childhood of uh, living in a big garden and being outdoors barefoot all the time with loads of pets, uh, so very connected to nature and uh, on safari every weekend. So... um, Again, camping at white sand beaches. I didn't know other types of beaches existed, <laughs> probably like you in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, it was, I would say, a childhood of... Um, I went to a Montessori school as well. So it was a lot of like just exploring my curiosities, yeah. uh, being very much in touch with nature and animals. Uh, we had kittens uh, all year round, twice a year. Uh, so... Um, it, it was more that than actually learning the Swahili language, I would say. Yeah. Right? The Swahili language is just something I learned here and there to get around. We mostly spoke English, Kenya being a British colony in the past, uh, and it was a settlement colony. So there's a lot of people who were established there across generations. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and a lot of good memories. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And what was it like going to a Montessori school? So that's a long story. (laughs) Um, For sure, I think if I were to look at having children today and where I would put them, I would certainly look at different types of schools that are more alternative. And especially in our world today where um, knowledge isn't the problem accessing knowledge is like more than there's more than enough right on internet it's about how do you what do you make sense of that knowledge how do you apply critical thinking and in particular how you creative and how do you adapt to this ever-changing world that's just moving fast and faster and i feel that's what the montessori school um gave me yeah i worked with a coach who went to the waldorf schools amazing storytelling in those schools something like that um but what i think it opened up in me is this in, intense curiosity for the world yeah. uh, and to always be uh, questioning things and putting my beliefs into perspective as I start learning from different people around the world. And that's probably also being in Kenya is a very diverse kind of um, landscape in terms of uh, who lived there. Right. So in the school I went to, it was uh, Kenyans, black Kenyans, Indians that had come through. Mostly there was a lot of Indians in Kenya had come through the slave trade or the slaves from uh, the British colonies and then the white expats. So the beauty of a Montessori school is basically there was no racism or differentiation. Uh, It was everyone is equal. And as well in Montessori schools, I think in my case, 40% of the children were handicapped. Oh, wow. Right? So some of my friends didn't have fingers. Some were writing with their toes because they didn't have arms. Wow. Some were in wheelchairs. So it was a lot of appreciation for the humans for being humans. We are all the same and we're all living on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Wow, that's that sounds really cool. It sounds like a very, yeah, interesting way to spend your years growing up, which is cool. And so you mentioned that you, your parents, so half French, half Peruvian. Uh, so did you ever live in France or Peru growing up? Never. No. <laughs> Never. Wow. No. I lived in Kenya and then Switzerland. So Switzerland. yeah, I became Swiss with the years. Yes. Yeah. How old were you when you moved to Switzerland? 10 years old. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so did you then um, go to a Montessori school in Switzerland? Or? No. So actually even in Kenya, I went to the international school um, around the age of seven. Okay. 
So I was already in that system when we moved to Switzerland. So I continued in, in the international school system. And that was basically um, in Kenya, it was an American system. And in Switzerland, it was a British system. So I kind of grew up in a mix of British and American culture. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. That makes for a very interesting life. Um, I've just been in Australia my whole life. <laughs> Until now. So. Well, Australia is amazing. <laughs> it is a cool country. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. And so now fast forward a bunch of years, you, you studied security engineering and you moved into the crypto or Bitcoin space quite a number of years ago. What what sparked that? Yeah. So I actually did uh, I did my studies in what's called communication systems. So that's a mix of mathematics, electric engineering and computer science. Right. And I was really passionate about mesh networks, which are these kind of distributed networks and about security. So I specialize in security and basically did my thesis on formal verification for security protocols, which sounds horribly dry and boring. Um, sounds very smart. And I uh, and graduated from that. I actually did that in Australia um, oh, wow. for a company called Qualcomm, which is a California-based company. Cool. Uh, and then I graduated from that, and that was 2008. So this was before Bitcoin existed. Uh, and then um, I did a bit of a sidetrack. I actually went to work on uh, Febreze, so air fresheners. Nice. Uh, marketing or brand management for that brand, so for a company called Procter & Gamble. So I took a break from all the engineering stuff, but that passion was very much there. And so I don't remember exactly when, probably around 2011. Uh, I was already listening to podcasts at the time, and I discovered on a podcast this new electronic money called Bitcoin. And for me, it was the first form of money that from a design perspective made sense. So one thing that we know or that we've seen is since the, I'd say 70, since we knew that computers, personal computers were going to be connected to each other, there was always a question of how are we going to make digital money and how are we going to create digital identity? And there were many attempts on creating digital money. And in particular, in the first years of, of the web, right, in the 90s and early 2000s, there were some projects that tried to create digital money. Um, and, and I can speak a bit more to how that worked. But basically, those attempts failed. And Bitcoin was the first one that I was like, wow, this actually really makes sense. And, and that's how I got into it from a very, like, backseat perspective in 2011-12. I just started, you know, following it, uh, got a few Bitcoin, not much. Um, and then I really doubled down on the space in 2014-15. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. And so was it the security element in the cryptocurrency framework that really, uh, I guess, interested you or what? Actually, uh, yes, yes and no. Um, what interested me more was the story behind it. And when I say that, it's it's tightly linked to the technology. So maybe it's worth speaking a bit to that story. Absolutely. Um, so basically, there was, I think it was in the 90s or 2000s, there was the the idea of creating money is if let's take for example music when the web first was created you could digitalize your cd and turn it into an mp3 right and then you could copy paste that song a thousand times and it was a huge issue for the music industry uh, now think of money right if you create a digital coin and you copy it paste it a million times you're a millionaire and that doesn't work right because money works because it has some form of scarcity Yes. Right. So how do you create the scarcity? And the, the way this was put forward or tried in the first attempts of the web was to say, OK, well, I'm a like centralized entity. I'm a company, uh, let's say, based in Canada. There was one I think it was. I don't remember the name. Uh, maybe it was eGold, something like that. And um, they said, okay, well, we, you know, give us some gold, <laughs> give us like one ounce of gold and we'll give you one digital ounce of gold, right? That's kind of the notion. So there's this kind of entity and it was a legal entity that was holding kind of a ledger, which is basically an Excel table <laughs> that says person A, right, has 
X amount of money, digital money. And each time someone wants to move that money, that table has to get updated. Right. So then if I want to give one coin to person B, I remove that coin from person A's entry in the table and I add it to person B's entry in the table. Right. Yeah. And that made sense and it was doing fine. I was picking up. But as soon as these projects started picking up like power, right, because money is power. Yeah. um, They got shut down for legal reasons, which is not directly because they had too much power, but there's a, there's a certain interpretation that the early attempts money failed because they were centralized and only one entity can print money in a country, and that is a central bank. Yeah. So as soon as you have one company in a country printing digital money, there's questions as how to that fits into the broader legal structure of the monetary policy, <laughs> legal and regulatory structure and monetary policy of a country. Totally. So the only way that we were going to create digital money was to create a decentralized version where no one owned it, where the trust was distributed. Instead of having the trust sitting in a centralized entity, it had to be spread out across a set of computers. And that is where Bitcoin comes in. So the best, I think, analogy that we can learn from is what happened with the Napster story. And sharing music online, right? So at first, it was just a few people sharing music online. Napster was semi-centralized. It got shut down. What happened is we ended up with more and more decentralized protocols where basically a protocol is just a recipe for two computers to interact with each other. And we ended up with this, like now we have the torrent protocol, which basically says, hey, this is a recipe for two computers to exchange files with each other. And it's any computer, as long as there's one computer running this recipe, this protocol, then there's this this service that exists, yeah. right? And so now trying to shut down BitTorrent or Torrents is impossible because shut down three computers in one country, as long as there's another three in another country or somewhere else in the world, there's no way the Torrents are going to get shut down. And there will continuously be an exchange of of media online, right? Right. So now we can each country can have a legal approach to how they want to manage that, but the technology in itself is resilient, right? Yes. And so that's kind of the principle behind uh, Bitcoin, which was how can we create money that is a recipe, right? It just every computer on the network is just going to follow this protocol, and this protocol is going to print. In this case, 50 bitcoins every 10 minutes, right? And and if there are more computers who want to who want to participate, then it's always going to be 10 minutes. But they're just going to need there's going to be more power needed to print that money, right? This is what we call hash power bitcoin. So that was the principle behind bitcoin. What happened is in 2006, this person called Nick Sabo proposed. Uh, a design very similar to Bitcoin, which I think was called BitGold, um, which used some concepts from David Shom's 1982 Berkeley thesis. So these were really old concepts on how to create digital money in a decentralized way where you're replacing the trust of a person or an entity with a trust in a recipe, in a protocol, in a computer protocol. It is code. The trust is in maths. Yeah. And instead of people and it's visible, the ledger or the protocol is visible for people to verify rather than just trusting someone blindly. Exactly. So what this recipe does is every computer on the network has a copy of the ledger. And each time we want, there's a transaction that gets initiated, saying one Bitcoin from me to you, for example, then the computer who wins is a mathematical puzzle that is designed so a computer wins it every 10 minutes. The computer that wins that mathematical puzzle will earn 50 Bitcoins. This was when Bitcoin was launched, by the way. We can talk more about that. Now it's much less. Yeah. 
um, because it halves every four years. So it went to 25, 12 and a half, 6.25, which is where we are now. We call that the Bitcoin halving. But basically, the computer wins this puzzle. And that computer will earn its 50 Bitcoins for winning the puzzle. This is how Bitcoins are printed or minted. This is how the money, this digital cash, the vision was to create digital cash. That is still a big question. It's looking more like digital gold today. But this is how this digital cash is printed and issued into the system, right? It's a computer wins this mathematical competition, which requires computation power and earn some money and then we'll take all the pending transactions on the network. So there's my transaction pending to send you one Bitcoin at the time that was not worth much. Today that was worth a bit more. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> and um, and we'll then update the ledger with all of these uh, new transactions, right? And there's a whole process to make sure this is secure and you don't have double accounting, et cetera. The double accounting situation comes from the fact that you, it's very hard to change the history of this ledger. Yeah. So what happens is the computer updates this ledger and then it packages it into a block and it adds a block to the blockchain. And so this is a term you might have heard. The blockchain is just every 10 minutes, it's an update of the ledger. It's the blockchain is a data database that's immutable, that is read-only. You can only append to it, right. right? So every 10 minutes, it gets updated with the new information. But the whole history of a coin can be seen because we can see every 10 minutes, whoever was updating the ledger yeah. can see it. So every computer in the network now has a copy of this ledger, which is called the blockchain. So as long as there's one computer running Bitcoin, Bitcoin will exist because there will be a copy of this. Right. Which makes it very secure then because it is read-only and everyone can access it at any time because it is saved on all these different computers all around the world. Is yes, right? it's secure for because exactly it's resilient in that way that yeah. it's on every computer. Um, but it's also secure because to change the history would mean to reproduce all the computing power of th in history to have won all these competition mathematical puzzles for every 10 minutes since 2009. Right. So... So that's the technology of Bitcoin. And that idea was actually proposed very interestingly. Um, so what we saw is we had, I think, in August 2008, Bitcoin.org was registered as a domain name. Right. On 31st of October 2008, the Bitcoin white paper was published, so on Halloween of 2008. And it was a, it was a proposal of peer-to-peer -peer cash. Um, and on the 3rd of January, 2009, the first Bitcoin was launched. Well, the protocol was launched and it was basically two computers. And the first transaction was with this Nick Zappo, who wrote the 2006 kind of proposal, which of which the Bitcoin white paper is heavily influenced or inspired from. Right. And this Bitcoin white paper is written by a certain person called Satoshi Nakamoto. Right. And... Uh, and um, and there's a and there's a big like I this is just my interpretation but obviously this person clearly for me was an engineer or a protocol designer security researcher I would say more than an engineer a scientist mm -hmm. and I think whoever wrote it whether it's one person or several people they w they had this idea in place for a while they were just waiting for the right time to get it out right, right? so it's like when you plant a a seed, you need it at the right time and it needs to be watered properly yeah. and nurtured. And so this, for me, the seed, the Bitcoin seed was planted just after the crisis of 2008 right. in the crypto anarchists forums, because they knew these were the people who would be most receptive to the message at this time. Right. Right. It doesn't mean that Bitcoin is a crypto anarchist technology. It just meant that was the highest probability of adoption. And we saw it get adopted with WikiLeaks shortly after um, in terms of helping WikiLeaks stay funded because all the traditional methods of funding got blocked. Right. Um, and so I think Bitcoin was in a way back to was I interested in the technology or this, you know, or what was it? It was also the story, which is mm. to a certain extent political in the sense where it's questioning who is allowed to print money. Because what happened with the 2008 crisis is it's the first time in history where we see this notion of quantitative easing, which is 
I won't go into the technical details of quantitative easing. A lot of people say it's money printing. Yes, it is. It's it's much more sophisticated than that. It's not just pure money printing. Uh, it's more accounting between cent- uh, central banks and banks of the of a nation, <laughs> the yeah. central bank and banks of a nation. But it was essentially flooding the the markets in a very indirect way with a lot of money, and. I think a big message of Bitcoin that landed with the, that the crypto anarchists adopted was this is money that is limited in supply and no one can decide to print more because the recipe says only 21 million Bitcoin are going to exist. And and so in 2008, as we look at central banks printing a lot of digital money, new centralized digital money, that is government money. There's a question of who's going to pay for that. And I think we're seeing the consequences of it today with inflation. Who's paying for it? It's all of us. Everyone. Yeah. But if you had a form of digital money where the trust was in the math, not in the people, and the math and the recipe said there's a capped number of coins that can ever exist, that risk of inflation isn't there. And that's the story we see with Bitcoin today that is very strong, which is it is resilient. It's an inflation resistant asset. Yeah. Uh, and hence the digital gold name. Yeah, which is, I think, very fascinating and important because, like you said, you know, having governments that control the supply of money or the interest rates, it's it's risky because people make mistakes and people can be power hungry or governments can, you know, be power hungry and want to control. And so it opens society and, and the whole world and individuals up to this huge liability of excess money flowing around, which just devalues everyone else's money. So like I think what you said about how there's a limited supply of Bitcoin is really, really smart and effective because it reduces the liability on the individual people and on society as a whole, which I think yeah. is really important. Yeah. So that's what was interesting is one, wow, this is like, first of all, the technology is amazing because it's like decentralized. You, you can't, you, you know, it's like cutting the head of a dragon, cut one head and three grow, right? Like yeah. this money... This technology can stay around for a while and it's landed in a story that makes a lot of sense today in terms of exactly what you just summarized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, it's, it's very interesting. And I think I found it interesting what you said, well, two parts was about how it was somebody in Berkeley in the 1980s were talking about digital money and then how uh, with the Bitcoin white papers being released and Bitcoin being seeded in, was it 2008 or 2006? It was oh, 2008, I think you said, just as the GFC was heading or, you know, it really was this prime time for this thing to really take off. And I think that was really interesting. I'd never thought about that before, that it was timed in such a way that it would be receptive to people who had been affected by the GFC or by that industry. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. So the 1982 uh, thesis was actually more just about the technology, the proof of work technology. The first kind of form of digital money that decentralized design is a 2006 blog post that never got implemented. And the first implementation is Bitcoin in 2009. 2008 is the paper. 2009 is the launch. But enhance this kind of like this gap between 2006 and 2008 is really interesting in terms of time like you know and getting it into the hands of the right people at the right time yeah because I imagine if they would have launched in 2006 before the crash yeah would it have had that same power like I don't like you said I don't think so I mean like because the 2008 GFC crash was absolutely huge it was worldwide I mean like you said we're still seeing the effects of it today so I think that's really interesting that they waited until that happened perhaps they even saw signals of it you know, coming and they thought, let's hold off. I'm not sure, but it's a really interesting point you made. Yeah, we'll never know. Satoshi has (laughs) disappeared since 2011. No more signs of Satoshi. Wow. And so Satoshi was, were they ever, or the group, it was never really revealed who who it was, was it? It's still a mystery. So what's interesting is uh, Satoshi's coins have never been touched. Right. Probably one of getting to one of the richest people on the planet. Wow. <laughs> this person has never touched the coins. There's a lot of speculations of who this person could be. This person was very much in the forums kind of guiding the early community. And I, I think from what I recall, around 2011, the CIA started get it, getting interested in this technology. And uh, and that's when Satoshi, the persona, disappeared. Right. Um, and, and 
that's what makes the power of Bitcoin today, right? Because there have been attempts to shut down Bitcoin. 2014 being, I think, the biggest one in the US, but you know, India banned crypto and Bitcoin for a while. Like, so had Satoshi been known that you know Bitcoin might not have survived, and the fact that this person, I think, did it maybe from I don't know an ideological or maybe from a purely scientific perspective more than for a more than from a power money perspective is really interesting the fact that these coins have never been touched is talks wow. to the power of, of the intention of the creator of this yeah. this project yeah it's fascinating do you know how many coins he has or he or she or they? oh i don't i'm not off the top of my head no. it's a lot, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> wow oh my gosh so interesting and so, okay, so that started your interest in crypto and was really the origin story that got you into it. So at what point did you start sort of investing and trading and getting more heavily involved in it? I imagine at the start you were just sort of researching and understanding the technology of it and then at some point stepped into the ring, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I started really getting into it more around 2014-15, and for that, we need to understand uh, the next technology that came after Bitcoin, which the one that really took off is Ethereum. So I'll speak a bit to that because this is really where things explode. Um, basically, Bitcoin was digital money. And I think what's coming next is programmable money and programmable assets in a much broader way. So very early on, um, after Bitcoin was launched, people said, hey, but we can use this technology for more than just digital money. Anything that is a unique asset that has some form of scarcity or that is rare, whether it's art or you pick your, you know, pick whatever you want, that would be a rare asset. And so part of the Bitcoin community was like, let's expand this technology to make it what we call Turing complete, which is basically, can this technology be used for everything, not just for one thing specifically, right? Can we, Turing complete basically means, can we make it programmable? And so there's these ideas like colored coins and side chains of blockchain, of Bitcoin, which today no one talks about. And there was a subset of the Bitcoin community that was like, probably the majority actually, who's like, no, 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 this is digital cash and it's nothing more. And it's even a question of whether it's cash or it's a reserve asset, it's a medium of exchange, a store of value. That's a whole other story. Um, but there's the part of the community is like, no, we're not touching this. The code is staying intact, right? Minor changes to make sure it's secure, et cetera, but nothing big. And another part of the community, which was like, no, no, let's extend this further. And so what ended up happening is a community for me forked into two. And this other project, the one that really made the most sense at the time, but there was many proposals, right? Was a project called Ethereum, which you might have heard of. Yes. <laughs> and it was uh, proposed, I think, um, at the Miami Bitcoin conference in 2014 by Vitalik, who at the time I think was 19 and he was writing for Bitcoin magazine and he published, I think, this, I don't even know if it was a white paper, but this idea of like a, a programmable money smart contract platform, right? So that's basically taking the concepts of Bitcoin, but making it um, more general. So making it like a world computer for digital assets, right? right? Where every computer on the network can process not only transactions from person A to B, but also run code. And this code is called smart contracts, which is basically, it just says, if something happens, then do that. Right. That's all it is. Right. Right. And but that's it's held in the in the ledger of some sort. It's held in the blockchain. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the code is law. That smart contract code is law. And once it's rolled out on that blockchain, well, it can't be changed anymore. Right. right. And and if the keys or the access to it, the keys that are allowed to access that smart contract are burnt, then no one can access that contract. It just runs on its own. It, think of it as like a piece of code that runs on all computers of the world that no one owns right? right? To, the, to its extreme case. Obviously, today, there's ways to still access those contracts through a set of keys, etc. right? Keys that can unlock the access. But 
parking that the initial intention is it's basically a neutral piece of code that runs that is the trust sits in the code and in all these computers that are running this code and this code sits in the blockchain right right cool and then anyone can interact with this code right so instead of having i don't know like I'll take the most extreme example, but a bank that does lending, right? Where you have to go to a bank and they decide if you're credit worthy and all of this. Let's replace the bank with code. And one side, you have the person borrowing money. On the other side, you have the lender. And you've just created a neutral technology between a lender and a borrower where uh, each side has to hold up to what they promised through collateral, all governed by code. Right. Right. Yes. So code is law in a way. It's fascinating. I remember I was reading about this at one point. I don't, I can't remember which coin it was. It might have been Aave, where basically, yeah, you put down your crypto or whatever is collateral and then you can take a loan out through this coin. And it's a way to access, uh, yeah, financial money or whatever, like a, a mortgage, for instance, or a loan without having to sell your crypto and go to a regular bank and get a regular loan. It's a way where, say, someone in you know America can then go, oh, I want to make 6% on my money and then I'm going to lend my money to Ellie in Australia and she's going to put up her crypto as collateral. And so it's like, we don't know each other. We have no idea what credit rating, all that sort of stuff, but it facilitates the transaction to allow us to borrow from each other, which I found, I'm probably getting details wrong, but I found that concept of taking out the banking intermediary really amazing because one, it reduces the cost of uh, borrowing the money, but also it enables these transactions between two individual people that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Yeah, no, you summarized it well. It's it's basically peer-to-peer borrowing yeah. and lending. Yeah. And the trust sits in this piece of code, not in a legal entity. Yeah, right? which I think as time goes on is becoming yeah. more and more appealing to people because it's more secure and lots it, of different ways. Well, it's it's globalized, it's digitalized, it's accessible 24/7. Yes. It's permissionless. Yeah. Right? No one's saying what's your credit score as long as you have the collateral, yeah. you're free to do what you want. I'm sure it's probably a lot more efficient too in the sense you're not filling out all this paperwork and having to like you said run to the bank and do all these things. It's a lot more streamlined probably through I'm guessing. Yeah, through. the user experience is streamlined but it's still like uh, I mean, it's a work in progress. It's still, it's still, there's still, I think, yeah, work in progress, as okay. you say. Yeah. Um, but it, it, this, so that shows kind of the potential of where this can go, right? Totally. Of like, this is like reimagining the finance industry. Totally. But so just backtracking to 2014 and 15, we weren't there at all, by the way. This was not clear no. like this <laughs> at all. It was just like, I think we can do more with this technology. Maybe we can do digital right. art. Maybe we can do other assets so it's sort of thinking what's possible maybe we can do internet of things and we can get cars to like refuel automatically right recharge like take an electric car they can recharge automatically because they can exchange value for energy on the grid right right? so you like i was working in 2000 i think 17 at google so we're looking at like hey take waymo for example which is google's autonomous cars and you could say hey this car could now as an internet of thing, drive around alone, and when it needs to recharge, it just plugs into an electrical grid. It has some co- digital coins that it sends to this charging station, and in exchange the charging station gives it energy. And this yeah. all happens in an automated way without any intermediary. Right. Um, yes, so I mean. at the time, like we just we didn't know what what could be made out of this. Uh, but obviously this idea of programmable money was probably the most prevalent one, programmable assets. Right. Um, and I think that's what like blew my mind at the time. And as I was finishing my MBA, I did an MBA from 2013 to 15. When I graduated, it was pretty clear for me that I wanted to go down that path. 
I was also exploring stuff in the travel industry, but very quickly I ended up going down that path and joining a project as co-founder um, called Enigma, which is now the secret network. Um, and that was, again, all around privacy, given my security background, uh, privacy is a big topic of interest. And that's really what made me kind of double down and decide to go full time in, in this industry Yeah, uh, and just contribute to building it. And it's, you know, these are security products. So it takes typically a security product. It takes 10 years to say that it is production ready or that it's ready for wow. mass usage because it needs to show its resilience to attacks and, you know, all these vulnerabilities that it could be exposed to. Um, and that just needs time. Uh, and so Bitcoin is there, Ethereum is getting there, but at the time, all of this was just high, high risk. And mm. so I joined in 2015 knowing it was very early on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing. And so you mentioned you were co-founder of a privacy software or system called Enigma, was it? Yeah, Enigma. Yeah. Yeah. So I joined basically it was a team of uh, two. Uh, one was at MIT um, and I joined as a business co-founder and basically took care of the, the seed uh, round for fundraising. At the time, it was all about not, no, no digital money. That was big no-no because it had been the whole Silk Road and like and so investors didn't want to hear about digital cash this was like too dangerous to go down that path from a regulatory point of view it was all about blockchain not bitcoin right. and this was this whole idea of internet of things or how can we use this blockchain this distributed ledger world computer to do other things but not money right yeah. at the time when well, i were back in the money world but at the time we weren't there so we we did we fundraised around that and and privacy preserving solutions I'm not going to go into the details because it's going to take us on a whole tangent. For sure. For sure. <laughs> um, but at the time, that meant that it was going to turn into a B2B. Uh, so business focused type of project and my skill set is in consumer direct to the end user. And so I didn't feel I was the right person for this project yeah. and uh, out of the two other co-founders, another one also decided to leave. So we parted paths um, and guy stayed and found another co-founder and this project is still around and doing very well so it just changed names so it's it's now the uh, secrets but it's written s-c-r-t right, right? um yeah. secret network and there, it's all about secret contracts right secret smart contracts so these are are basically privacy preserving contracts where you can't see what's happening because everything on the blockchain is transparent right so any contract you're going to put out there is, is transparent and sometimes especially when it comes to delicate financial transactions privacy is a nice thing to have sure. <laughs> also <cases>. also <laughs> to protect individuals Absolutely. right Absolutely. yeah um and so that was kind of the, the intention and it uses a technology called multi-party computation right. um so i parted paths and and then i thought maybe the best chance for uh this project to have any legs and for me to have an impact on crypto and at the time and also i just didn't you know, I didn't have anyone else with who to work. I thought Google would be maybe a place where if there was one of the big companies that was going to pick up crypto, it would be Google and its values and ethos. So I joined Google as a product manager, tried to do crypto there uh, and didn't last very long at Google, <laughs> did just about a year okay. yeah. <laughs> and then left to go back into crypto. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was Fair at Google, enough. I was also doing like as much as I could in crypto and writing the Google internal crypto newsletter. I was trying to educate people in the space, see what, what Google could do. But uh, as we see even today, Google is not involved in crypto. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I left and joined another project as an early, early team member. And that project is called Cello. Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. And I'm, you mentioned Zello before. So if you can talk about it, a little bit about it, it's conscious money and you did a whole bunch of voice service for them. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just I, I joined as a product manager for the platform for the protocol. So right. my role was basically to, to coordinate the team uh, to launch the platform. Right. And it's, I call fellow conscious money, which is as we saw this whole space evolve, where is the biggest opportunity? And for me, crypto is really building a parallel financial system. 
Um, I think we'll see more with assets like NFTs for art, but at this stage, this is where we see the biggest opportunity. And what had happened is in 2016, I went around Africa um, researching how to redesign the mobile phone for emerging markets, because that was another venture idea I was exploring along with crypto at the time. And I was trying to tip everyone in Bitcoin. And I realized actually the biggest opportunity wasn't redesigning the mobile phone. It was making crypto accessible to this part of the world. Right. Uh, and that the fastest way to get crypto adopted was not to break the, to help people earn crypto, to enter crypto natively without having to go from the bridge from fiat to crypto. That bridge is extremely complicated. And that's what I loved with Bitcoin is that um, you could earn your Bitcoin, especially right. early on. And I was like, okay, so how can we maybe help people earn crypto from their mobile phone? And so when I met Celo, that was part of the design. Celo was a huge protocol, and part of the design was helping people natively earn crypto. And the whole purpose of, of Celo is making the financial system accessible to all. Right. Uh, and and so I call that conscious money, but it's it's really about prosperity for all mm -hmm. and by making mobile crypto mobile. Right. So it's a mobile first cryptocurrency. Right. From, uh, and then really focused on the the making it accessible to the world, not just for DGENs and traders who want to speculate on coins, yeah. uh, but more about how can we make payments, mobile payments work around the world. Right. And so when, sorry, just to interrupt, when you say natively earned crypto, what do you mean by that? But that I mean, instead of you having to take your dollars or your pesos or your euros and go to an exchange to get some crypto, right, and buy crypto, how can you just earn crypto, right? right? And in Bitcoin, especially in the early days, you just needed to download the Bitcoin protocol and run it. And right. you, every so often you would earn some Bitcoin. Right. Is that uh, crypto mining? That's crypto mining. That's right. for me, natively earning crypto. Gotcha. So I was like, how can we help people earn crypto, can we design a protocol? And I'm a security engineer specialized on protocols, security protocols. Like, maybe I can do this. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that you cannot do this alone, right? If you want to go far, you go with a team. Absolutely. And I met the solo team and they were amazing. And I was like, okay, th these folks, like, you know, like they have, so, like, they have so much talent. Like it's a team that I feel, um, can go far and that I would want to be part of. Yeah. And so I joined them because we had a common vision around what crypto could be beyond just speculation. Um, and, and yeah, so there was in that, in that original design, this idea that people could earn crypto from their mobile phone by participating in the protocol right. in the seller protocol. We ended up having design issues with that part of the protocol and ended up killing that part of the design. <laughs> Unfortunately, <Okay. laughs> it's very, very hard to do proof of work. I still think proof of work is the best way to help people earn crypto. We were looking at a verification system with text messages um, as a form of identity and having other mobile phones provide that service, but it was too unreliable and very hard to design securely. Yeah. So we parked all of that, um, but the Celo platform still exists in, in, in different ways and is actually a proof of stake platform uh, because it's a bit more environmentally friendly as well. And at the time, it was the best designed from a security perspective right. to launch with. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it sounds like you've had a very interesting career. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to, we were talking about this before we, we started the podcast, but some of the, the money mindset things that you learned through trading and the things that didn't work and the things that did. Can you sort of talk to some of those? Yeah. So um, obviously I've been in crypto a lot for the values and for contributing. I, you know, for a big part of, for me, is just earning my crypto, right? I always work for my crypto. But I also um, was fascinated in uh, trading. And so I read all the 
uh, Market Wizards books. Okay. Um, Hedge Fund Wizards. I don't remember what they were called. There's a bunch of them. And I was like, this is really interesting. Actually, trading is probably the toughest thing to do from a mindset perspective. It's like, it's like being a high-end like sports player. You know, like you you need to strip off all your ego if you want to be a good trader. Yeah. Uh, And actually, the best traders are not only super smart, they are super um, balanced emotionally. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, this is clearly a three-year endeavor. (laughs) And the first step is to work on uh, the psychology and my beliefs behind it. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing this at the same time as I started doing psychedelic-assisted therapy. So that was a very interesting combination of talking about stripping (laughs) your ego. (laughs) Amazing. Um, So I... There's a lot of lessons learned. I think the the big lesson learned in all of this is that we learn from experience and we know this from a nervous system, neuroscientific perspective, right? It's, it's the experience that puts a highlight on what is important and that really makes us learn what to do and not to do, what works and doesn't work. And we can also call that our beliefs, right? Our perception of the world and how we perceive the world. Mm-hmm. And so the early the early stages of what I did in trading is I had this was an exercise where you take a huge chart and you write a hundred beliefs that you have about yourself and life, and you do the same thing for your beliefs about the markets and trading. And then you write, where does this belief come from? How does this belief serve me? And how does this belief maybe not serve me? And then do I want to keep this belief? Yes or no. And if it's no, then releasing that belief. And so it's all about doing a huge check-in on your perceptions. Yeah. So as a good perfectionist student, I went along <laughs> and wrote all my beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, well, I'll do all of this. And lo and behold, then I went and traded and got wrecked. And <laughs> at least I had learned the lesson of don't put too much money in <laughs> because you will lose it all. All the best traders, the majority of them lost it all before they started learning because that's how we learn we learn from pain and the only way you learn from pain is you lose it all (laughs) and and clearly the belief chart was not that helpful my ego is still very much in there (laughs) um of you know all the rookie mistakes that you'll make and and i think it was uh, you learn those mistakes because of like you know, do I put my stop limit to, uh, where do I put it? Too high, too low? Actually, I'm going to move my stop limit because I, th- I hope that the market is going to move and all these things where your emotions kick in. And uh, obviously it went all over the place and my beliefs kicked in unconsciously and that exercise was helpful, but not that helpful. What was much more helpful was the experience of losing the money and making the money and learning how to be neutral with regards to it. Mm-hmm. And I'll be, I mean, I think I'm still in the process today and it's been four years now, right? Yeah. And I am still learning about this. But the big thing for me was what came up from working with uh, plant medicines, actually. Right. And what I hadn't realized is I had beliefs that were so deeply ingrained and unconscious that I had forgotten about from early childhood and from my teenage years that completely shaped my view of the world, but that I wasn't consciously aware of. And I could do all the Excel trade tables of the world about my (laughs) beliefs. (laughs) Those deep rooted beliefs that are, that I've discovered get shaped in the first thousand days of a child. Uh, And these are emotional, they're nonverbal, they're unconscious. Uh, They can be expressed an extreme form of discomfort as an adult but without having any words to express it Mm -hmm. will get reflected in your form of how you approach money because money is power and trading is the ultimate form of testing your your relationship to that power right investing is a softer approach because it's over a longer time period but the markets are just ruthless especially in crypto because there is uh, a lot of illegal activity happening, such as pumps and dumps, yeah. harvesting stop losses, those kind of things. And so, yeah, so the big lesson is actually uh, the plants have taught me so much about myself. And and trading is for me more like a game and not something where I, I don't live off that. It's more a way to test as to where my ego is <laughs> than it is to make money. For sure. uh, and, and, and the big 
the big part of all of this is our emotional relationship to money and what it represents for us in society. And for me in particular, what I believe and what I see a lot in crypto is, is that as people come for the money mm. uh, because they are looking for self-affirmation. And it's so easy when the markets are pumping and going up. I'm like, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm crypto. I'm <laughs> and an I'm going <laughs> to leverage. We've all been there. <laughs> and they get wrecked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but... In, the, in that story, people have learned about the technology, they learn about the story, and many people stay for the community. And through that hardship time, through the grit, that community gets cemented, and they become the next wave of builders. Right. So in every kind of bull market wave of speculation, I, I don't see it that I used to judge it like speculation is bad, but no, I actually value it because it brings talent in each time. And obviously there's people who are going to leave until the next wave. But for me, it's, it's a, it's a nice way to organically grow the community and fine. It will appeal to people's insecurities, but it will also make them check yeah. in on their insecurities because those markets crash. Yeah. And make them yeah. maybe work on it or do something about it because if they don't, they're going to just get wrecked again. So, but, yeah. but I mean, this is a big disclaimer in this, like, I just want to recognize that like, this is, I would love to see more education around this because there have been people who have lost all their family savings who yeah. have killed themselves. And like, I'm not saying this mm. is good in any way, shape or form. I'm just observing this and I would invite anyone who is willing to try help these people through this journey <laughs> yeah. to reach out to me. Cause this is something I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And if you feel comfortable, would you be open to sharing some of the money blocks or mindset things that you had to work through or that you worked through with the plants? Yeah. So it's not directly, um, but I can, I, I would have to think about There's so many. <laughs> I just have to think through it. Yeah, I mean, I think the big one is, um, you know, trauma. So I discovered a history of trauma and trauma, as Dr. Gabor Mattis says, is not what happens to you, but what happens in you as a result of what happened to you. And for me, what happened in me is a disconnection uh, from my mother and a feeling of loneliness. She was bringing me up alone. Uh, and so started working very early on when I was three months. So I relived that loneliness, uh, but that I relived actually in part with the plants and as well with MDMA. And... And that loneliness, that disconnection from my mother, who's my primary caretaker in these early, early days, is a disconnection from myself. And that's a question of self-worth. And so, I mean, this is so cliche, right? But like... <laughs> it's cliche for a reason. <laughs> right? Money mm. is, is a proxy. For me, ultimately, what I ended up learning from all of this is my self-worth and from what the trauma, what happened to me is is control and independence. And that's how I fill those voids of loneliness and of pain. And, and the control and comes the ultimate form of control and freedom is money in our society today. Right. Yeah. Because if I have money, when I am free and two, I'm, I have I have a certain power of controlling how I want to live my life, but as well where I want to put my resources and where I want to see society go. Yeah. Um, and so money is really a proxy for that. And, um, and so because I never really paid attention to money and I was lucky to be an early Bitcoiner, suddenly I just ended up with a lot of money and I felt very safe. Right. And it's only when I started trading that I realized that I wasn't safe. And it's only when I started working with the plants that I realized that I wasn't safe and that no amount of money was ever going to make me feel safe forever. Yeah. Right. And that that safety was going to come in from inside. And this is what so the plant medicines have shown me my pain and the more chemical psychedelics like MDMA and LSD, which I'm doing in Switzerland um, in a legal context, which is a whole other story, yes. um, have, have shown me the potential yeah. of what I could have. Right. So one shows me the, the hard and one shows me the, the beautiful. And what I know now is in the integration is how do I, how do I get to the beautiful by integrating the shadows that the plants have shown me? 
So as you can see, money issues can run so deep and be buried in our shadow self or buried in pain from from childhood, from from adulthood. Money problems suck. We all have them at one point in our lives, whether we're making so much money and we still we're still stressed out, whether we're struggling to make money and believe that we can you know, earn a certain amount of money, whether we want to start a business or get to the next level in business, you know, we all struggle with this at times. And the problem is, is that most money books out there only deal with the mental aspect of money. That's where Rage Heart comes in. Rage Heart gives you the tools to change your money beliefs for the better, but not by working with the mind, by working with the body, where the root of all this stuff lies. So if it sounds interesting, if it resonates, check out sexmoneyrage.com slash go and sign up for the free daily rage. It's awesome. There's great humor in there, great stories, and tons of really helpful information about the nervous system and about survival stress and how to work with it. So check it out, sexmoneyrage.com slash go. And those shadows is in the end, like is a deep psychological process, an emotional process. And my check for that is my relationship to money. Mm. Right. Um, and, and so for example, now I'm not working and I'm living off my savings. How do I feel about that? And it's, I'm fine with it, but had it been four years ago, I could have done that and I didn't do it because I wasn't fine with it. Right. And so it's it's progressing very slowly, but I use money as a um, and my relationship to money as a check in. And whenever as well, I don't feel well with regards to it. Uh, for example, there's the markets crashing and I was like, OK, actually, am I numbing the emotions or am I not feeling well or I'm OK with it? And I went through all three. Yeah. And there's no better way to learn about yourself than to go through these emotions because that's how we learn, right? It's totally. through the experience again. Yeah. <laughs> so, course. yeah, so it's I'm still in the process. I'm not in a place where I can give clear insights, but it's all back to self-worth. Yeah. And that learning of self-worth comes from the experience. And the only way to do that is to live life. Yeah. Amazing. And so when you say um, you mentioned working with the plants, was that ayahuasca or San Pedro or both? Yeah. So it's been it's been mostly ayahuasca up to now, but I've been doing a dieta. So I've also worked with Noya Rao and Bobin Sana. And actually, personally, ayahuasca in itself has been great to start off with. But I find using ayahuasca to connect to the other plants right. much more interesting because bobin sana for me now is more nearly more powerful than MDMA and I can access it at any time. Mm. And that is that is for me integration, right? To be able to bring this into my life. Mm. MDMA showed me what I could have, but bobin sana is making it much easier for me to integrate those feelings of feeling safe of feeling whole of feeling okay with the here and now um has come much more from the plants which have a i'd say a softer and maybe they have more of a spirit to them right oh yeah which makes them much more accessible for me yeah um so sorry when you said bobinsana yeah bobinsana what, what is bobinsana so bobinsana is a little pink flower <laughs> yeah. it's a tree that has these little pink flowers they're like fluffy and pink cool. and um they're known for many people to create a feeling of love for me when so this plant gets drunk actually it has a bit of alcohol and i usually don't drink alcohol so it's interesting it gets drunk on the nights where you don't drink ayahuasca okay. and that was how i drank it at least and Th that first time I drank Vomensan the night after I had crazy dreams and my heart was exploding and I was warm in my whole chest wow. and it was a huge feeling of love uh, and if we think back of a feeling of disconnection from my mom and lack of self-worth it's back to lack of what I saw in my first MDMA sessions, my mom loved me a lot, but she can show it to me. And this is what Vomensan gives me. And when we, when we are in that place of love, we don't need our proxies like money to fulfill those insecurities that we have. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so is it hallucinogenic or is it just nope. like kind of like basil or mint? It's no, just something no, it's just a, a plant. A regular plant. Yeah. And wow. so what ayahuasca does is it helps you 
connect to the, as they say, the the wisdom or the spirits of those plants, of right? Those plants. right. Uh, ayahuasca is the bridge that opens. A friend described it very well. She's like, when for her, how she experiences it, and I've experienced it to a certain extent this way as well, is when when the Icaros or the maestras or maestros come and sing to you, they open up this kind of tunnel and you just dive into it and you enter this whole other world of plants and drinking bobinsana it's like diving into the world of the bobinsana plants mm, right and discovering that universe amazing yeah wow. and for me it's been much more of a, a somatic experience yeah, yeah. wow uh, cool and somatic in the sense of it's brought you more into your body yeah, body feeling love, feeling, feeling whole, um, feeling warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool, amazing, amazing. And so, what what's next for you? What what does the next sort of trajectory, six months, twelve months, few years look like for you? Uh, I don't know. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no plan. See where um, it goes. My word of the year is play. So I'm exploring and wonder until I find something that fits. Awesome. And then I'll just go from there. So I'm and I'm in exploration mode. Um, but I feel very strongly around um, creating, I don't like the word education because it sounds so boring, but maybe yeah, in, inspiring and informing um, people about crypto uh, and then supporting them through investing uh, with um, all the work I've been doing with plants infused into that. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at content and experiences that combine that are really in crypto, but that um, have a dimension of, I don't know, maybe virtuosity or a morality that is that really comes from working with the psychedelics and the plants. And maybe it's a combination of both. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe we'll do trading workshops with Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. <laughs> I'm not sure. might want to ask the plants first if they're okay yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. Check in. <laughs> wow. Well, it sounds amazing, Claire. Very, been a very, very fun, interesting discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I don't know if you have any um, social platforms but is there any way that people can find you or connect with you if they want to know more about your work? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, and yeah, my uh, username is at Claire Belmont, C-L-A-I-R-E-B-E-L-M-O-N-T on all platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Telegram, wherever, choose your platform, LinkedIn, <laughs> it's Claire Belmont everywhere. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again, Claire. Really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Go to sexmoneyrage.com to sign up for the free email newsletter for all things sex, money and rage and hit the subscribe button so that you always get notified when a new episode goes live. Have an amazing week and I'll catch you next time.